Oh, I think it's on. Blew my intro. I'm just kidding. So, good morning. My name is Jeff Cullinger, and I'll be bringing the word to you today. No, um, no my name is Dave Shoemaker. Um, it's my pleasure to serve as one of your elders. Um, and it's a real pleasure to be able to open the word with you. Um, it's been really cool um, to be able to give Pastor Jeremy a little bit of a break. Um, with, it's hard for him to stand right now with the foot surgery, so we want to continue to offer him that break. But he gave us as elders an opportunity to kind of do some team teaching, which has been a really fun process. And I'll be honest, it was pretty intimidating at first. So if, you, if you've done any preaching, you generally hang out with dead people, right? So you read the text. Paul's been dead for a while. He's with the Lord, of course. And then you read commentaries, which is dealing with dead people, right? A lot of dead commentaries that we read. And then this was a new process for me, dealing with a message where you're actually in conversation with, and I was a little worried it would be like two people trying to drive the same car. I've got my left hand on the wheel. My wife has the right hand on the wheel. You know, that's not going to go very well, right? So, but I'll be honest, this has been one of the most pleasurable um, preparation experiences I've had uh, when I've preached. And that's mostly because Jeff... Uh, who I am not, um, is a, a really easy person to work with, very bright, uh, knows the word well. And so it was a right, real joy to work with him. So the way it's going to work this morning is I'll do a little introduction here, talk about two of the points. He's going to come up, finish off the text, and then do some application with us. Of course, we'll kind of apply along the ways as we normally do. But so that's that way when halfway through I walk out and he walks in and we do a high five. You're not too confused when that happens. So, um, but yeah, so as I was preparing for this message, uh, the text was assigned, and what's, uh, which was kind of nice. It means I didn't have to think about what to preach on. Um, the topic came of contentment. And I couldn't help but think of a scene from a Disney movie. And this is a first for me. I've never quoted a Disney movie from the pulpit. It's not that I, I'm against it, not that I'm for it. I just haven't. But there's a, there's a movie that most of us are pretty familiar with called Finding Nemo. And Nemo is a little fish that gets stolen away from his family, and he's in an aquarium somewhere, and Dad is going to go find Nemo and bring him back. And there's a really, really fascinating scene where uh, his father, whose name I don't even know, is, finds this other fish called Dory, and they somehow end up really deep in the ocean, so deep that it's completely dark, and they're not sure what to do. And off in the distance, there's a little, little, little tiny, what looks like a speck of light just glowing. And they're like, ooh, ah, it's a light. And they literally start to get kind of mesmerized by this little light. Some of you know this scene, right? And, and they get mesmerized by this little light and it's dangling. And, and the comment is like, ooh, it's a beautiful little light. And you can tell they're getting hypnotized. And as he goes, he sees the light and it's, ooh, oh, it's beautiful. And it, it makes me happy. And then the line that I love from that movie is, he says, it makes me happy, and that's a big deal, right? And so uh, this fish who's seeking after his bigger mission child sees its little light dangling, and he's hypnotized by it. And if you know what's coming, you know what's coming here, right? Is all of a sudden they realize that right behind that fish is this huge skeletal-looking anglerfish. If you've ever seen a picture of an anglerfish, it's a scary-looking fish, and it's about to devour them. 
but he got lured into a way of thinking by this beautiful little thing dangling out here. And I can't help but think that contentment is a bit like that. Or probably better stated, I kind of think that contentment or discontentment is something like that. We see little flashy things out in the distance and we get enamored by them and we think, ooh, those will make me happy because happiness is a big deal, right? And what we don't realize is behind them, there's the big anglerfish, right? And so the topic today is contentment. And to do that, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I think there's water down here, so that's a good thing. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Sorry, let me find the text here. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if, if you were to remember nothing else from today, we want you to, we want you to, to pursue contentment as a way of pursuing eternal gain. Okay? Pursue contentment, or to say it the way we put it on the slide, pursue eternal gain through contentment. Life is full of these little flashing bulbs that draw our attention and try to suck us in. But true eternal gain is going to come through pursuing contentment. So there'll be three main points that we talk about today. And they're on your screen right now. One, we're going to pursue contentment to avoid spiritual destruction. We're going to pursue contentment to avoid spiritual destruction. And then we're going to talk about fleeing covetousness by actively pursuing God in Christ. We're going to flee discontentment and greed by pursuing Christ. And then this is where Jeff will step in. Jeff will help us understand that we need to learn contentment by living generously. We're going to learn contentment by living generously. So let me read the first section. We're going to pursue contentment in order to avoid spiritual destruction. Verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we, can take, we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evils, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this section we're going to talk about pursuing contentment to avoid spiritual destruction. But before we do it, I kind of want to talk a little bit, real quickly, about the definition of contentment. So uh, I think there's a slide for this. Contentment, the Greek word is autarkeia there, and autarkeia at its very base, just a word by itself, given no context, either, it means one of two things. It's either something is sufficient, or it's the subjective feeling that something is sufficient for you. Okay, so the first definition, my hand is not a sufficient tool to cut a wedding cake. You see the sufficiency of a, a good knife that'll cut a wedding. Imagine going to a wedding and having a cake cut by my hand. 
Not a very pleasant thought. So that would be my hand is insufficient. A knife, a proper knife is sufficient to do that. But that's not what, how this is being used in the context. Here, it's talking about the subjective feeling that what we have is sufficient. That's deep, isn't it? That's a really deep thing. Now, um, that's the linguistic definition of autarkeia. But the Bible has a bunch of passages that teach about autarkeia that is to say contentment. And I want to give you a quick summary because of we've got a long text today, so we don't have a lot of time to do a lot of cross-referencing. Okay? So a more theological definition would be it's the learned state of the heart by which believers can find joy and satisfaction in whatever condition they're in. Right? The learned condition of the heart whereby believers are able to find joy and satisfaction in whatever condition they find themselves. Just, just think about that for a week. Right? That's a, that would be a good thing to meditate on. Now, but I don't want you to misunderstand. There's a difference between contentment right, and the fallacy of fatalism or the notion of complacency. Because okay? a lot of people have misunderstood Christianity. Some people would say out there, oh, Christianity is just a way of keeping the masses down and keeping poor people poor and keeping people from achieving things because it's just a way that the, right, the bourgeois class can suppress the, the lower class. And that's not really what contentment is. Contentment is the ability to be satisfied in any situation, but that doesn't mean you can't look for that promotion. Right? So here's the tension. If I say I'm content, does that mean I can't seek a promotion? Does that mean I got to stay in the same job the rest of my career? Does it mean I can't aspire to, to big things? So here's, I would think, is the key. God made us in his image to rule this world, to create, to be artistic, to dominate the world in a good sense. Correct? If that's the case... There is a good case for Christian aspiration. But here's the key. In your aspiration, ask yourself this question. If I never get that promotion, can I be satisfied now? Or in my seeking for the promotion, or if am I seeking for the law degree, or am I seeking for the, right? I, I don't want to be the coffee getter for the executive vice president. I want to eventually be the executive vice president. If that's what you want, great. But can you be satisfied and find joy while you're the coffee getter for the executive vice president? Does that make sense? Right? So there is a Christian case for aspiration. It's just that you need to be content while you are doing it. Because the Bible never tells you to just stay where you're at and never improve. And Jeff will deal with some of that even as we go along the text a little further here. So we've talked about a definition of contentment, the ability to find joy in any situation. And it's a learned thing. And Paul probably summarizes it best in Philippians chapter four. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Do you catch that? So I have learned the secret of facing plenty, being in hunger and in need. And he can be content. Now remember, this isn't just Paul 
who lives a really happy life. Do you remember where he showed probably the greatest contentment? Now this is the book of Philippians here. When he's in the jail in Philippi, having been beaten the night before, he's singing praises to God. He can be that content. So contentment, something we need, something we need, okay? But now, in these verses, we're gonna find out that ultimately contentment is the key to avoiding spiritual destruction or can be a key to avoiding spiritual destruction. Verse six. Well, let me give you a little context first. In the previous context, he says, look, there are people who use godliness to try to make money. Do we know people like that? People on the radio, people on the television, people who sell books. Let me just, one quick key. If they keep talking to you about you making a bunch of money and you finding wealth, then they're probably using that to make wealth themselves. Right? So just be aware that there are people out there who use godliness to try to make illicit gain. Now, then what he says is, that's wrong, but there is great gain in godliness. True godliness with contentment will actually get you better gain in the end. Again, verse six. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. I stole this joke from Pastor Gibb. Uh, A funeral. A woman outlives the man. Typical story, right? Man is super wealthy, and he says, look, take enough for you to live on for the rest of your life comfortably, but I want to be buried with my wealth. So they go to the funeral, and it's a closed casket. And all the family has heard the wishes of the husband, and they heard the wife agree to it. So they go say goodbyes. The casket goes into the ground. And one of the, the family members comes up to the wife, and the wife says, Wow, I can't believe you did that. You buried all his wealth with him. And she goes, yeah, now all he needs to do is get to the bank and cash the check. (laughs) Thanks, Pastor Gibb. I appreciate that joke. The point that I'm trying to make here is that you come into the world naked, you die naked. You bring nothing into the world, you can take nothing out of it unless you invest in eternity. You can't cash that check from from the bottom of a cold, cold grave. So the conclusion he says is, if we have food and covering with these, let we shall be content. Now it's really interesting here because it's not a command. He just makes the statement. Look, if you have food and if you have clothing, you'll be content. It's technically not a command. It's just a description of the state that we're going to be in in the future. That's the place that Paul wants us to be. And those are the two categories. If you look at Issues of anxiety, most of the issues of anxiety in the Bible and most of the issues of contentment, it's satisfaction with food and shelter, food and shelter, food and shelter. What, what are the dangling lights for us? Are they food and shelter or are they, ooh, 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 that one nicer car than I just leased or that one nicer car that I just bought? Because happiness is a big deal. With food and covering, with these we shall be content. Uh, now here comes the spiritual ruin part. He says, but those who want to get rich, verse 9, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish things and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Fascinating. Um, 
Notice what he says here. It's those who desire to get rich. Okay? Now, the word rich just means kind of rich. Okay? It's, there's nothing. But the word desire there is a slightly stronger word. There's two different basic words for desire. One is kind of want it. And then there's the other one that kind of says, I want and I'm planning for it. Okay? And both are fine. There's nothing uh, illicit about wanting something and planning for it. But in this context, it's talking about people who are going after those lights, who are greedily going after something and are not able to be satisfied in the moment with what God has given them there and now. So this would be the person whose life is lived not for Jesus, not for others, but for self and looking forward and always going, I need one more thing, I need one more thing, I need one more thing and not finding satisfaction in the moment. Notice what he says. It plunges people into ruin and destruction and sin. Why? For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evils. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You catch that? Some people will even eventually leave the faith because of lack of contentment. You think that's a serious issue? I need to be satisfied with what God's given me. Yes, I can pursue. Yes, I can aspire to things. Yes, I can be responsible with my finances so that I can do better things in the future. But not at the expense of putting Christ first and not at the expense of finding joy and satisfaction with my food and my covering. So, which leads us to our second point. And I promised Jeff I would be done at a certain time and I'm going to have to compress, forgive me, so this next point is going to get a little bit shorter than I wanted to. So I may not hit every single part of the passage um, the way I wanted to, but um, kind of editing on the fly here. Um, our second point, right, we're going to first point, pursue contentment to avoid spiritual destruction. Some of you might be on that verge right now and maybe God's calling you back from that point. So you say, okay, I want to quit doing that. How do I quit sinning? How do I quit sinning? We're going to get point two. We're going to pursue, uh, excuse me, we're going to flee covetousness by actively pursuing Christ. You know, a lot of times in Christianity we say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And people are sitting there going, I, that's all I can think about what I'm not supposed to do. How do I replace that? You replace that by pursuing rightness. By pursuing God, by pursuing Christ, by pursuing godliness. And that's point number two. So verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And you go, what does that have to do with contentment? That was a lot. Just stuff coming at you. How this ties in. He says this, avoid spiritual ruin by, dis, by, by becoming content. 
And how do I avoid discontentment and all the sins that follow from that? I do that by pursuing godliness and pursuing God. And that whole end there, which is a whole section of praise to the Father, flows because when you are pursuing the good, when you are pursuing Jesus, you are ultimately pursuing Christ and the Father. And ultimately, that is an act of praise. And so it fits perfectly. So he says, actively avoid something by filling your life with other good things. Ultimately, filling your life with Christ and the Father. Flee from these things. Notice it's flee. That is a very strong word. It's not, it's bugs money out of there. It's to run away from. And often the picture is used of Joseph. Right? Often the picture is used of Joseph in Potiphar's wife in the Old Testament, where Potiphar's wife is pursuing him, grabs his, his, his clothing, and he runs, even tearing the coat off his body to flee. Again, for, t- for Jeff's sake, I'm going to cut it down here. So ultimately, though, what we're doing when we flee away from sin is we're pursuing Jesus. We're pursuing Jesus. And ultimately, that's why when we say that the most fulfilling life that you can have is pursuing Jesus is because he is the reason why we do what we do, and he's the reason and the person we do it for, and ultimately, that brings glory to him and ultimately back to the Father. So we've talked about learning contentment to avoid spiritual destruction. We've talked about fleeing covetousness by actively pursuing Christ. Now I'm going to hand it off to Jeff, who's going to finish us off for the morning. We struggled a lot with how we do that. It seemed kind of weird, but... And I will tell you, um, all this last three weeks, I learned how to be content to work with Dave. <laughs> you let him drive. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's actually, thanks for the kind words he gave about working together. It really has been a blessing to work together. It's been fun. It's kind of like iron sharpening iron as we talk about things and challenge each other with what we're reading And hopefully that'll do some things today as we uh, close this out. When we talked about how to handle this message, I wanted to take the more practical application part, mostly because, as some of you know, who know me well, this continues to be a really big area of struggle and challenge for me. And so I'm going to finish this morning first with Paul's challenge to us of how pursuing a life of abundant generosity that's evidenced in our attitudes, our actions, and our aims towards our money and our possessions helps us how to learn the great gain of contentment in Christ. And then I'll finish with some practical ideas, and a lot of these from my own experience, about how to live more fully towards learning and living this generous and contented life. A life that we'll see, Paul calls, taking hold of that which is truly life. So first, let's talk about our attitudes towards money and possessions. Verse 17, as for the rich in this age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now here Paul actually gives us two warnings about our attitudes towards money and possessions that actually tend to pull us away from contentment. 
And then what our attitude grounded in contentment in Christ should be. The warnings, don't be haughty or prideful or arrogant. And don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, what's the problem here? Well, wealth tends to give a false sense of superiority and a false sense of security. On the superiority side, it makes us feel that we're worth more or that we're better than we really are. On the security side, it entices us to place too much of our hope or our focus, either in our possessions or the enjoyment of them, which are entirely uncertain. And when we do that, we face the dangerous tendency to become dead to all sense of our dependence on God and his provision for our happiness, which is the key to contentment. Paul says, don't let these things happen. The alternative to both is true contentment in Christ, which Paul says we learn by putting our hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And there's two points of emphasis here. First, Paul says, remember that it's God who provides and that he richly and sufficiently does so. Paul reminds us first that if we have wealth, it's a gift from God. It's not primarily owing to any particular skill or wisdom that we have that makes us better than someone else. And so it helps to counter that tendency to be haughty or to be proud. Not only does God provide, but God provides richly. And this provides the basis for contentment in God's sufficient provision rather than trusting in the uncertain earthly riches. Think about it for a minute. If we truly believe in God and his character and his promises, we must trust that we have everything we need for this moment in the material realm, as Dave shared with us, food and shelter. Because if we truly needed anything else, God would have already given it to us. And the fact that we don't have everything we might wish for simply means that in the eyes of God, it's not something we truly need, at least right now. And then second, Paul says God permits and encourages us to enjoy everything. This is in a sense an encouragement because Paul reminds us that a life of contentment in Christ is not necessarily a life of poverty or destitution. Rather, it's a life of joy and satisfaction. What Paul's saying is what Pastor Jeremy reminded us over and over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Contentment in Christ means gladly and thankfully receiving the portion that God in his wisdom and his goodness supplies to each of us. And then to simply enjoy it for his sake as a good and a sufficient gift to us. So our attitudes help us learn contentment. But then Paul switches from our attitudes over to the actions that can help us to grow a heart of contentment grounded in contentment in Christ. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And here he gives another two sets of commands. First, he says, do good and be rich in good works. Now here, I think Paul is reminding us that it's not just our giving of money or possessions, but also our personal time and effort that matters. We're to be rich in good works, rich in good deeds, Rich in acts of righteousness. You see, I think Paul realizes that for those with money and possessions, and this is true of me, it's often easier and more convenient to give of my money than it is of my time. 
And Paul starts with saying with God equally wants us to be engaged in real and personal and tangible ways with a very hurting and a very needy world. Why? Because personally helping others who have less, who are in greater need than me, teaches me and reminds me to be more fully content with what I do have rather than focusing on what I don't have. And second, he says, be generous and ready to share. Here, Paul speaks of the attitude of our heart when it comes to all of our resources, our time, our talents, our treasures. Being generous has an element of giving both cheerfully and broadly, a heart that's open to the vast array of opportunities that God sets in front of us, holding what God has blessed us with with an open hand and not a closed fist. And being ready to share has the idea of both a willingness and an eagerness to act, not reluctance, but willingness and eagerness. Collectively, these commands challenge our natural selfish tendency in our hearts. And they're also very practical ways where Dave was earlier about how to flee the covetous problems that come with too much focus on money and possessions. When we approach our money and our possessions with our hands open and our eyes up, looking around enthusiastically, expectantly for opportunities to share what we've received, that's when we best learn and experience true contentment in Christ. And so our actions help us to learn contentment. And then finally, our aims, verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul finishes in verse 19 with how proper aims for our generous attitudes and our generous actions help us to learn and experience contentment in Christ. So what are those proper aims that should motivate our generosity? Well, not unexpectedly for Paul, they're eternal ones, right? Store up, yourself for, store up treasures for ourselves and as a good foundation for the future. Paul, I think, is likely here thinking of Jesus' command in Matthew 16 to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I think in a similar sense, through our generosity here and now, he uses a second metaphor of a building a foundation of sorts that will someday draw on forever in eternity. In worldly terms, it's the idea of somebody who lives in Japan and is getting ready to make a trip to the United States. What's their currency? It's the yen. What is, how many stores in the United States are going to serve you when you walk up with yen, right? So what does he do? He goes to the bank. He makes a deposit in yen. He makes the trip to the United States. He goes back to the bank. He pulls it out in dollars. And now he has a currency that works in the United States. It's the same thing that happens when we invest in eternity with our time and our talent and our treasures today. He's saying that as we live a generous life towards others with our time and our money, we're really making deposits, really making deposits into a foundation of a heavenly retirement sort of account. And that is a deposit and a foundation that will, with certainty, get, when we get to heaven, pay great dividends, treasures in heaven, that we will enjoy forever. But then what's the present benefit? Or is there a present benefit or effect of those ultimate aims, those heavenly aims? What's the effect of that generosity? 
Again, it's contentment. Paul describes it here as taking hold of that which is truly life, or in some translations that I like even better, the life which is life indeed. Now, I want to illustrate this present life of contentment in Christ through the daily bread picture by Michael Beck. I've used this before. You've seen it before. But I use it because I think it so well illustrates the contrast between the life that we all too often live and the life of real contentment in Christ that Paul wants for us and God wants for us. And I believe what Paul primarily means here is that generous Christians who take a seat at the table with Jesus, who let go of their money and their possessions, who are rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share, who set their sights on building an eternal foundation, who store up treasures in heaven, they discover a quality of life right now, today, that those who are more stingy, who continue to hold on more tightly to their time, their advice, their money, their possessions, never know and never experience. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling us to join him in just such a life of contentment, not just someday in eternity, but right now, and through a life of generosity that's filled with adventure and excitement and joy. That is the kind of life that's truly life. That is the kind of life that is life indeed. And so the aims of our generosity likewise help us to pursue contentment. Now, if Paul has moved you like me to desire that kind of life, the question becomes, well, how do I do that in practice? I'd like to offer by close by offering a few suggestions to consider. And in suggesting these, know that I am speaking in part from personal experience and otherwise because I am preaching to myself. Because this is probably one of the biggest areas of struggle in my life. And so, and as I explore that, I want you to know my focus is not so much on asking you to start or increase your giving to Midland Free. Rather, it's simply to see, ask you to see where God may be nudging you forward to be more contented and generous stewards of what he provides, however and wherever that may be. So three points on application. First, learn contentment and generosity by truly trusting in God's promise of provision. In the end, for many of us, and it's true for me, our level of contentment and resulting generosity, it's primarily a faith issue. It's a trust issue, a heart issue, a lordship issue. I know that all too often, if you go back to that picture, all too often, I jump out of that seat at the table. I succumb again to the lie that I've got to hold on to my money and possessions because I've got to plan for every contingency that can happen in my life. And when I do that, I lose contentment in Christ. And I again become afraid and I become reluctant and I become stingy and I don't give as generously as I might or should. Why? Because I'm not trusting him anymore to meet my needs, either now or in the future. And for those of you who struggle with this like me, I want to take us back to the briefly to the second Corinthians uh, three-tiered fountain that we, we looked at back in May and it'll come up on the screen. Now remember this, the source of the top God pours into the conduit of the basin in the middle, that's us, an abundant supply that the flow out of from the conduit of the basin, which retains only that which is needed for sufficiency or contentment, either now or overflows in abundant generosity to others, right? And in that context, and this is what Dan read for us, 
Note the amazing nature of God's promise of abundant supply. Really, watch this. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Look at it again. All grace, always, all grace, all sufficiency in all things at all times to abound in every good work. That's an amazing amount of all. Amen? So the question then is whether you and I really trust God's character and his promises to take that step of faith, to let go of our money and possessions, and to sit at the table fully content in Jesus and God's promise of abundant provision. If you are still struggling with that, I implore you, I urge you to do business with God on that issue. There is so much, so much abundance, so much joy, so much contentment waiting on the other side. It just takes some faith and some courage and some trust in God's promises. Now, second, our other application, practice contentment by learning to better, learn contentment by, by, sorry, practice contentment by learning to better steward your income and your lifestyle. I may step on a few toes here. For some of us, it may not be a faith or a lordship issue, but a practical issue of managing the size of our basin, right? In that, in that fountain analogy, the degree of how much we are generous with others is often dependent upon the size of our basin. If it's big and we retain a lot of things, we won't be as generous. If it's smaller, there's more opportunity for God to use us to, to, to show abundance to others. And so we need to learn how to better steward our income and our possessions and our lifestyle week to week and month to month. So if this is an area of struggle, let me offer a few suggestions. Again, many from my own experience. For some of us, that may simply mean for the first time, getting real control of our finances, getting on a budget and sticking to it. And if that's where you are, there's lots of ways to take next steps. One is to go online and take Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University curriculum. Who's taken that? Some here? My wife and I have taken it twice, once a long time ago, once again in our 50s, and we actually explored it with our kids as well. And I promise you, if you take it and you really do what it says, it will radically transform your finances and your life. And the reason I love this course is because it will set you up to begin to pursue the abundant generosity of contentment in Christ that Paul is calling us to. The whole point of what Dave does in that is to get you on the kind of financial footing so that you can be overpowering, abundant, overflowing, generous givers of God's abundance to the work of his kingdom. And that's what God is asking us to do. If you want something more personal... There's also people, wonderful, godly people in our congregation who are here to help. We can put you in touch with someone who specializes in helping people walk through just the nuts and bolts of putting together a budget and getting your finances in order. And if you've got that in place, we can put you in touch with financial planners who can help you with better managing your investments so that hopefully, again, you can free up more to invest generously in kingdom work. And if you're led to be taking a step in one of these areas, please see me. Please see Dave. Please see you got Pastor Gibb, and we can help you with where to go next. Now, for others of us, this is why I may step on some toes, this may mean taking some time to think and pray about how to live more contentedly on less. How to shrink or manage the size of our lifestyle to increase the flow of water over the edges. 
And I'll leave it to God to challenge you about potential issues in your own lifestyle. But for me over the years, that's meant struggling and struggling a lot and over a wide variety of things. And here's some examples. These are all true. Choosing to live in a smaller home and not buying up when we could. Buying good used cars and driving them for years rather than trading up to the next new model every two or three. Living for a lot of years without cable TV. Man, I miss my college sports. Giving up the $100 annual fees on each of the seven rewards credit cards that we had, which never seemed to work out, rather than the one or two with no fees that I just needed to get by. Resting, resisting, and this is a big one for me, resisting the urge to buy a second lake home like the one I enjoyed so much with my family as a kid growing up. There's something about lake water when you get it in your system and you smell it. It's just wonderful. And that's my, that's my childhood and I have so wanted that again. But God has said, no, that's not for you. For others of us, and this was again Pam and me early on, perhaps it means to just simply start tithing. And I'm saying this not because that's the New Testament standard for giving. Rather, I'm saying it because tithing, particularly as a first step of stewardship, often has a God-designed way of adjusting our available resources in really interesting ways. One, it tends to limit lifestyle creep. And two, it tends to keep us dependent on God for what we need in the future. And that's, I think, some of the genius behind why that works that way. And then finally, for some of us, if tithing is too much right now, it may mean simply start by committing to reserve an amount out of every paycheck even if it's just a very small amount, setting aside right off the top as money to be given to God's work. The amount of the source doesn't matter. What matters is being obedient and having the faith and courage to step out, to trust God's promise of abundant supply, and to live more contentedly with a smaller basin and a more modest lifestyle. Now, finally, the last, and I'll do this quickly, Pursue the life that's truly life by cultivating an abundantly generous lifestyle. So if your heart's in the right place and your finances and basic stewardship steps are solid, then I think the question's a little different. And my question for you from our text is, what might God be asking you to do to give more sacrificially so as to increase your dependence on God? Maybe you don't depend on him anymore, and we need to try to get back to that. Maybe it means doing something to broaden your heavenly foundation and increase the store of your treasure in heaven and then to move more fully into the life that's truly life. So for example, it may mean setting aside each year an extra amount from any annual raise, either for greater giving or for supporting a new missionary or whatever it might be. And when I, as an example, I'm saying, if you tithe, don't just get 10% of a raise. Give 20%, give 30%, give 50%. Trust God to be abundant in your life by being obedient and faithful with what he gives you. And perhaps it means simply, and I did this during the COVID pandemic, perhaps it means taking some money every week or every month, maybe 20 or 50 or $100, and just put it in an envelope and then have it be available to do God's work as he brings people across your path. And then ask him to show you real needs in your family, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, And then be watchful for the opportunities to jump in and join God in the work he's doing in other people's lives. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your abundant grace that you poured out on the cross to redeem us as your children. Help us to let go of our money and possessions. Help us to join Jesus at the table. Help us to take hold of the life that he offers, the life that is truly life, which is contentment in just enough because Jesus is our highest and our supreme treasure. And in doing so, Father, we pray that you'll unleash in our lives, in our church, and through us in our world, the great gain of his promise to make us overflowing sources of generosity and blessings to the people around us. For our joy and for your glory, both today and in eternity. Amen. Thank you, Dave and Jeff.